Hey, let's pray and let's get into the Word. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 through 17 tonight. In the study I'm calling Not of This World. So we'll see why as we get into the text. And so, Father, thank you for, Lord, once again, a chance to get together, Lord, on a Wednesday night, Lord, to worship you and to honor you. Lord, we pray that you would be the center of our life, Lord, that you would be the wind in our sails, and that, Lord, you would fill us with your spirit, Lord, that we can go out and make disciples. Lord, help us to stay focused, Lord, on, on, Lord, on, on your word and, Lord, on the things that really matter, Father, which are you and, Lord, your coming and all those things, Lord, that you set our mind on things above and not on things of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. So I usually, I usually frequently use a joke that I think it's funny, but most people don't. And so, so here it is. I'll, I'll try it out on you. It's, this joke is really regarding my travel to Colombia, South America, each year. Now, I work out at the Navy base, and often I'll meet a new person. You know, they'll start working with us, and they'll find out I'm a Christian, and I'll I'll be talking to him, and somehow it gets brought up in the shop. Hey, you going to Columbia again this year? Yeah, I'm going to Columbia, man. October, you know, two weeks. They're like, oh, wow, yeah. And so the person just kind of gives me a look like, Columbia? And they said, aren't you afraid of, like, American kidnappings and, like, drug cartels? And my usual answer now is, because I hear this a lot, my usual answer is this. I'm not worried. I look like I'm a Colombian, right? (laughs) And they just kind of look at me for a second. You know, I kind of keep a straight face, and they kind of laugh, like, oh, okay, yeah, you're joking. You know, yeah, obviously, I am joking, (laughs) right? The truth is, as a Caucasian American, I stick out like a sore thumb in Colombia. Not to mention, I can't speak Spanish. And so, you know, wherever I go, I'm like, oh, hey, come here, man, what are they they saying? Or people come up to me and start talking, I'm like, yeah, yeah, come in, yeah, see, kind of thing like that. Now, I point this out because Peter, in our passage this evening, reminds you and I that as Christians, we stick out like sore thumbs in the world. We're pilgrims, we're sojourners as we travel through this world, which the Bible says is a foreign land to you and I. We're not of this world. You see, we're citizens of heaven the moment we become born again. The moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that our citizenship is now in heaven. The Spirit comes and lives in us. He changes us. Our actions are different. Our speech is different. We stand out. Now, maybe it's just me, and maybe I shouldn't do this, but I can't help it. But sometimes when I'm at Disneyland and I see a group of foreigners, I just, I just stop for a second and just kind of watch them because it's just, it's just you know, cool to me, you know, how they interact you know, and communicate and things, their mannerisms. Well, in the same way, the world does that to us. As they see us as believers living for Jesus, you know, um, walking with him, reading his word, they kind of look at us for a second, and no doubt, you know, they're, they're paying attention to us because we're different. We stick out, and we stand out. And because of this, we need to know how to represent the country that we're headed for, which is heaven. We need to represent our king, which is Jesus Christ. Now, we all know those lame American travelers that go different places to give Americans bad names, right? You know, they go to these different countries, and they say, oh, man, Americans are a bunch of lazy people, disrespectful, rude, right? We don't want to be the, those kind of travelers as we walk through this world. But we need people who represent the Lord well. We don't want to fall into that stereotype and says, oh, all Christians are just hypocrites. They say one thing, but they live a different way. We don't want to fall into that category, but we want to represent the Lord. 
Peter in this passage tonight is going to teach us how we can represent God in this dark and foreign world. The way that we're going to see is by living a good life. Now, this phrase is thrown around a lot, right? I live a good life. The, the believer can say it. The non-believer even sometimes says, hey, man, don't judge me. I, I, I live a good life. And what they mean by that is by their standards, you know, they don't go out and shoot people and stuff like that. And, you know, they, to them, they live a good life. But Peter is going to give us the definition of what it is to live a good life. And we know that this text can be used as a proof text to what it is to live a good life because Peter actually uses the word good a couple times in these verses, in verses 11 through 17. For example, in verse 12, he refers to good works. In verses 14 and 15, he refers to doing good, right, two times in verse, in, in verse 14 and 15. And so as we talk about walking this good life, living out these good works, it's going to represent to the world that you and I are not of this world, that we're followers of Christ. And then from this, my prayer is that we would really take home two things, two applications that we can think about and go home with. And those are the following two things. Number one, to live a good life, we must be surrendered to God and separated from the world, or excuse me, and separated from sin. And number two, we must li- uh, to, to live a good life, we must walk as servants of God submitted to the government. All right, so first in verses 11 to 12, we see to live a good life, we must be surrendered to God and separated from sin. Peter begins by saying, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And so Peter begins a new section of his epistle. He now begins to deal with the conduct of the believer. And he begins this, this section by calling these um, believers his beloved. Now, all Christians can be called God's beloved. It's actually another name, as we talked about last week. Man, we got a bunch of names in Jesus, and one of those names is beloved. It's actually, this name is actually Jesus' name, because Jesus is the beloved. He's God's beloved son. And as you and I accept Christ, we are now in the beloved, and so therefore we have this relationship with God. He loves us, and, and we love him. Now, besides being a sweet reminder that God loves us, this phrase also serves as a reminder that only those who are in the beloved can walk in good works and do the things that the Lord tells us to do. You see, good works flow forth from our salvation. And that's what James says in his epistle. He says, hey guys, faith without works is dead. Now people will take that passage and isolate it from its context and then begin to say, well, no, in order for you really to be saved, you have to start working and be baptized and do all these different things. That's not what James is saying at all. James is saying, if you have an active faith, your faith will be a living faith. If you have an active faith, your faith will produce fruit. Just as the classic saying, it says that uh, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It will produce good works. As we walk in Christ, our life will produce fruit. In the same way, for you and I, as we abide in Christ, we're going to produce good works. Now, Peter moves on to an essential encouragement here. Notice this. He says, I beg you. And so this is not just a suggestion from the apostle. This is actually a command. He says, hey, guys, I beg you, this is really important, so heed this. It's a, the, the first encouragement can apply to how we relate to the world around us. You see, we're sojourners and pilgrims. The word sojourner means a person who lives in a foreign land with a foreign citizenship. Also, we're pilgrims, which means we're in this land for a temporary time. We're just passing through. Just kind of like, you know, we're going through McFarland, USA, on the way to Disneyland. You know, man, we're just passing through, right? And, the, and, and that's the same thing for you and I. As we are in this world, man, we're just passing through. This is not our home. 
were sojourners and pilgrims. Now, these believers that Peter was writing to, they were literally pilgrims and sojourners. As we learned in chapter 1, verse 1, they were actually scattered and dispersed from their homeland. They were probably from the area of Judea uh, and Jerusalem, but because of persecution, they were scattered throughout this area of what we call Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. But figuratively, all believers can really be called pilgrims and sojourners because, as I said, once we believe in Jesus, this is no longer our home. We're traveling to the city which is maker and, and, and foundation is, is God. And, and that's what we're, we're walking towards. This body that we live in is not our permanent dwelling place. Praise the Lord for that, right? We can eat cookies all we want tonight then. Right? Just, just, start, just start pounding them, man. We're, we're going to heaven, right? Our allegiance is not to this world, but it's to heaven in our risen king. Our home is the new Jerusalem. That's what we're looking for. Paul says, keep your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. Now, in light of the fact that you and I are sojourners, and this, now this is, how, this is our relationship to this world that we live in, we also need to understand our relationship to sin. You see, Peter tells us here to abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. The word abstain means to hold yourself back from. So that gives us the implication that you and I can hold ourselves back from, and we can through the indwelling Holy Spirit. You see, we still have a flesh once we're born again. We still have these evil propensities, these desires at times to sin, to go back into the old life. But the Bible says that God who lives in us has given us power over these things. We can say no to our old nature. To our, before we were believers, we had no choice. We just said, yeah, whatever we want to do, right? I mean, we, we had no control over it. But now we can actually control. We can say no to the flesh. Now we need to understand as we walk through this world, it's not a peaceful zone. It's a hot LZ, right? As we're told, it's, it's, a, it's a hot zone. It's a war zone. We're at war continually. Now, this, war, this word war means a consistent military campaign. And so that's what it is as, as we walk in this world. This war against the flesh is a continual, consistent war. It's a campaign against ourselves. I love what D.L. Moody said to famous. He says, my greatest enemy is D.L. Moody. <laughs> All right? D.L. Moody said, my greatest enemy is D.L. Moody. And he, and he was right. He recognized that. Paul the Apostle said the same thing. Oh, wretched man that I am. He recognized his struggle with the flesh. These evil, you know, these evil propensities that remained in his flesh as a result of after he was born again. Now, this fleshly lust could also refer to the temptations that we get hit with as we walk through the world. So not only do we have this fallen nature still, but we also live in a fallen world still. And we all recognize that. All we've got to do is watch the news every day. This world that we live in is controlled by Satan and his demons. They have the whole world under the sway of the wicked one. And all the world really is mesmerized and following after the mirage of the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and pride of life. That's what John says in 1 John 2.16. That's, that's what really consumes man. That's what drives them. That's the passion of man. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. But it's something different for you and I as Christians now as pilgrims. Rather than having our life consumed after the things of the flesh, we need to keep our minds, our hearts, and our, and, and our eyes on things of heaven and not get sidetracked by the, by the wicked signs or the, you know, or the detours that will take us off this route that the Lord has us on. You see, turning away from sin is good. It ultimately leads to righteousness and joy, but turning, turning to sin ultimately leads to destruction. It's, it's, it's never a good thing. Verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak evil of you as evildoers, 
they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. To have honorable conduct simply means to have behavior that is honoring to God. It means excellent conduct, something that is beyond just a normal standard. A great example would be Jesus. Jesus lived a life surrendered and submitted to the Father. And if really, if you break Christ's life down, you can say Jesus' life was amazing because he followed God's will. My food is always to do the will of God. And he followed God's word. Satan came to tempt him and he says, nope, it's written, it's written, it's written. His life was to do the will of God. His life was to follow the word of God. And because of this, Jesus was able to look at those who came to him to speak evil. And he says, which of you convicts me of sin? Which of you can point me out a sin that I've done? Obviously, Jesus is perfect, right? Which that's just another proof of his perfection. The fact that no one can point out a sin that he did. They actually had to lie about him and take scripture that he used and, and twist it up. But nevertheless, Jesus is our example of what it is to live a good life. He followed God's word and followed God's will. Now, we need to do these things for a couple reasons. First, for the Gentiles' sake. You see, in context, these Gentiles are not just non-Jews, but they're actually unbelievers. And, and so, in a sense, we all live around Gentiles. And these Gentiles are people who don't know Christ. And as we walk with Christ, as we follow God's word and follow God's ways, just like with the life of Jesus, people are going to be kind of rubbed the wrong way. I mean, here was these Pharisees, right? And Jesus would come on the scene. He would heal somebody, and they'd say, we're going to kill. <laughs> we're going to kill this guy now. We're done with him. Or he would come in, and he would cleanse the temple, and they'd say, okay, yeah, he's dead. He's, he's on our list now. And the same thing for you and I. As we walk in the Word, as we live this life for the Lord, people, we're going to rub people the wrong way, and people just aren't going to like it. And because of that, they're going to have a desire to speak evil of us. You know, and, and sadly, that's, that's exactly what, what people do. We need to make sure we keep ourselves above reproach. We need to walk in good works that people would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. But second, people are watching us. They're watching us. They observe us. And that's what Peter says here, that when they observe your good conduct, your good works. So people are actually watching us. So whether we like it or not, people are paying attention to us. They're watching us. They're watching us closely. They're seeing if we're going to live out Christ before them. Now, we need to do these things here so when God visits them on the day of visitation, they could glorify him. Now, this day of visitation probably refers to the time in which this person is confronted with the gospel, the time in which God's grace convicts this person of their sin and, and calls them to repentance. And you and I, in a sense, can be used as pre-evangelism, as an apologetic for accepting the Lord. Now, I want this person, when, the, when they're convicted of their sin and recognize that they have a need for Savior, I want them to realize, yeah, man, wow, God changed Jake's life. Well, he definitely can change my life then. But I want them to think, man, I don't want to be a Christian because I know Jacob. I, mean, I know Jake. He's just, you know, a, he's lame kind of thing. And so we need to make sure that we keep our life above reproach. So when they are visited by God in this day of visitation, that they'll glorify God, that they'll give their life to him. And so our witness is actually an important thing as we walk to this world. Now we move on to our second point now in verses 13 through 17. We learn that as we live as servants of God, we're to be submitted to the government. Verse 13, therefore submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as 
to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Therefore, or in light of what Peter is saying, we're to have honorable conduct by submitting ourselves to the government. Now, the word submit here means to rank under. It means to recognize and follow proper authority. And God has established government as an authority. Now, specifically here in this passage, Peter refers to government officials. He refers to the king as supreme. That would be the leader of the nation and those who serve in offices under him. The Bible says that we're to respect those offices and we're to submit to the government and the authority that God has established in this world. Now, this isn't the only time that Peter's going to use the word submit. He's going to talk about relationships after this. He's going to talk about submitting to our employers next week. He's going to talk about submitting to one another in marriage. And then later on in chapter 5, we're going to see that younger men are to submit to the elders of the church. And so submission is a very important thing in the life of a believer. Why? Because it's really an aspect of the life of Christ. Because while Christ was equal with God, he chose to submit himself to God as a father. He recognized this authority aspect. Even though he was equal with God, he recognized that God has established certain authorities And for him to be pleasing to the Father and him to give us an example of what it is to walk the Christian life, he was willing to be submitted to God. So you and I are to to follow these uh, officials. Now, it's it's a biblical principle to respect and submit to the government and its officials. And we know that because Jesus did this. He submitted to the government in which he was living at his time. The greatest example is they said, hey, should we pay taxes or not? Now, obviously, we know it was a trap, but the Lord, using the word of wisdom, said, hey, let me see one of your coins. They gave him a coin. He says, well, hey, give to Caesar what Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. So he didn't deny that believers weren't to pay taxes and submit to the government, but he also said that believers need to, first of all, give their allegiance to God, which is more important. The Apostle Paul says that believers are to submit to the government. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. He says, let every soul be subjected to the governed authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you pay taxes, for you are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their dues, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, I would remind you, that Peter and Paul were both writing under the Roman government. And so it wasn't the greatest government in the world. They weren't necessarily considered a righteous nation. And no doubt, when they looked at their leaders, they weren't probably just praising everything that they did. But nevertheless, they recognized that the authority that was established in the nation was established by God, and therefore they were to give honor and respect and submission to that government. And so that's what Peter's saying here. And so context, probably Nero, Caesar Nero was ruling, and under him were men like Pontius Pilate. 
Now, while it is true that the believer is to submit to the government because it's established by God, and, um, you know, and even, sadly, when it's an evil government, and nevertheless, there are some things that we need to recognize, first of all, and clarify on what we're talking about. First of all, we must not assume that the evil that is done by government is established or ordained by God. And so just because a, a government does evil things doesn't mean, oh, yeah, God's in it. Yeah, we need to back it. No. I mean, well, yes, while, while government is established by God, not everything a government does is ordained by God. And secondly, the believer is not obligated to follow every single law of the government. What? Which laws can we disobey? <laughs> kind of thing. No, we're to obey the laws of the government because we're to give honor and, and respect to the government. But nevertheless, there are times when a believer might have to say no to various laws. And, and, and that would be when the government would seek to force a believer to reject or disobey the word of God. And so very simply, we can say that we are to obey the government and all of its laws, but we, mu- but we can't obey the laws that a government would put upon us to tell us to reject or to disobey the word of God. We see this throughout the scriptures. In Exodus 1, 15-22, we see with the Hebrew midwives, Pharaoh came to them and says, hey, we want you to kill the children. And mid- the midwife says, we can't do that. And so what they do, they... They said, hey, actually, these women bear real fast. <laughs> you know, so they, they actually hid the children. In Daniel chapter 3, they were commanded to bow down and worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar. And they said, we're not going to do that. I'm sorry, even though it's a law, we're not going to do that. Daniel chapter 6, they said, it's no longer, you're no longer to allow to pray to any other god. And Daniel said, well, I'm praying to God. So he went home, and as, as he normally did, I don't think he was trying to make a statement. He just always prayed. So he went home and prayed, opened up his windows, wanted to get some fresh air, right? It wasn't summertime in the valley there. You know, no air conditioning. You know, and so, I mean, he prayed as he normally did. But one of the greatest examples is Acts chapter 5. In this context, the Jewish religious leaders said, you are no longer allowed to preach the gospel. You're no longer allowed to talk in the name of Jesus. And here's what Peter and John said. We ought to obey God rather than man. Now, they didn't go off all these people didn't go off and rebel against the government. They were continually submitted to the government. But yet when it came time for them to be faced with this law, they chose to say no, and they chose to accept the consequences that they would have to bear as a result of, of disobeying that law. At times, a believer might be forced to flee as a result of violence. You know, But, but there's no scriptural evidence that we as believers should rebel against the government or, or, or act in anarchy or anything like that. We're to, we're to make a stand and be lights and witnesses as we make a stand for Christ and his word. Now, we're to obey the government, yes, but we should not o- obey when they seek to compel us to break you know, God's word by a specific law. Now, Peter goes on and gives us a couple reasons on why we should obey the government. We're like, okay, so, so what are these reasons here that we should really obey the government. Well, Peter gives us a couple. First of all, for the Lord's sake. There you go. Why? Well, for the Lord's sake. Do it for Jesus. (laughs) You know, it's for the Lord's sake. God has established government, therefore we're to be good citizens and follow his establishment. Plain and simple. God tells us to do it, so we do it. Whether we understand it or not, it doesn't matter. We're children of God, we obey his laws. Second, 
the establishment of government is good. Ultimately, it's good. Government is better than no government. It's to punish evildoers and protect those, or in, and to protect and bless those who are good. I like people who complain about the police because what, what, you know, what, what would our society be like without the police? As soon as they get in trouble, they call 911 kind of thing. You know, so, I mean, and, and that's the same thing with government. You know, God has established government. It's a good thing. You know, now, yes, it has its faults and its flaws, but to have government is better than not having government. Verse 15, now, by the way, I'm not getting paid by the government. I do work for the government, <laughs> right? But I'm not getting paid for this, but I'm just teaching the word here. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So third, it's the will of God for you to submit to the government. What is God's will for my life? That's often been asked. I like it that, that the New Testament often makes it very simple for us and clear for us. Yes, God has a specific will for every believer. He has a specific plan and a purpose. He wants to lead you and guide you. He wants to do great things to your life. But there's some things that all believers can recognize. Yeah, this is what God wants me to do. Here they are. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, the Bible says, Walk in holiness. Your sanctification is God's will. God does not want you to live in sin. God wants you to walk in holiness. That is God's will for your life. God wants us to walk in thankfulness. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. He doesn't want us to be people who complain all the time about everything. He wants us to be thankful. Now, he doesn't say give thanks for all things, but he can say that we can give thanks in all things because we serve a God who's good and who can work all things together for good. Finally here, we're to walk in obedience to God in his establishments. Now, there's a fourth reason. The fourth reason is because of our obedience it silences the ignorance of men. You see, the historical context of this passage was the Christians were being ridiculed and slandered as a result of them being different. They chose not to bow down to Caesar and to pay homage and say Caesar is Lord. They chose not to participate in the pagan festivals of the day. Christians, as we learned you know, um, from Revelation, were not being involved in these different guilds for their workplaces and stuff. And so they were looked at as weird and no doubt they're being looked out as non-patriotic. They weren't patriots. They weren't joining all these festivals for Rome and things like that. So people were beginning to speak evil of them, saying that they're really forming this, you know, this party which is anti-government and, and all these things. And Peter says, we need to not give them any ammo to point at us and speak evil of us, but rather we need to live a quiet life and live submitted to the government. Now, from this text, I think it's very clear what the focus of the believers were in the first century, and that was to preach the gospel and make disciples. To preach the gospel and make disciples. They say, hey guys, let's just submit to the government, live a quiet life, do what we need to do, be a witness, because ultimately our main focus and purpose is to preach Christ and see people get saved and see people's lives change so we can teach them the Word of God. And that's what our focus needs to be. Now, there's nothing wrong with being involved in government. I mean, praise the Lord for, for godly men. I pray that a Christian would run for president, right, and get it, you know, um, kind of thing. And, you know, I, I think we should vote and all these things. I'm, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But our main focus and priority ultimately needs to live a witness out in front of the world and preach the gospel, make disciples. Verse 16, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Now, I can't help but to look at these two final verses of our text this evening 
as our constitution as pilgrims as we walk through this world. It really kind of gives us a foundation. It keeps us anchored as our world is swifting around and changing on us. It really gives us some laws to abide by and kind of principles and pillars to stand on. So let's explore these. First, we have liberty, but we're not to use these things to serve ourselves. Life, liberty, but it's not to serve ourselves, it's to serve others. It's not to produce our own happiness, but it's to produce the, the pleasing of the Lord. You see, we've been freed. We've been ransomed off the marketplace of sin and set free. But now we're not to use that freedom to indulge our flesh. Rather, rather we're to use this freedom to then surrender and submit our lives back to God. And that's what Peter refers to here by a bondservant. And that's exactly what they did in the book of Exodus. You see, under the law, a servant was to serve for six years. And after the sixth year, they had a, a choice. They can either go free or choose to stay forever under their master. Now, if they came in single, then they would go out single. If they had kids and family and possessions, that they would stay with, with the master. And so when the six years came up, the person had a choice to make. Do I want to choose to surrender my life and serve the master because he's been so good to me and God has done a lot of great things to my life? Or do I want to choose to go, go free? If you chose to submit your life to the master, they would take you to the doorpost, pierce your ear, piercings were in, in, in that day, pierce your ear through with, with an awe, and that would symbolize that you would serve that master for the rest of your life. And that's what the Christian is. You see, we've been bought off the marketplace of sin. We've been ransomed. We've been set free. We're free in Christ. But now we can choose to surrender our lives back to Christ to serve him as a servant, to do the things that he wants us to do. Verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. There's no greater verse than that. That's really amazing when you think about it, especially in light of government and all these things. I mean, who would speak against Christianity, man, when you got a verse like that? Honor all people. Just look at the difference between our nation, which is built upon a Judeo-Christian ethic, and a Muslim nation, for example. Everywhere that the gospel has went, there has been equality, equal rights. There has been equality for women, right? Liberation. But if you look at where the gospel has not gone, there's, there's gone, there's still oppression, the Bible teaches honor for all people. We're to respect all people because God has made all people. We're to respect them because man and woman are made in the image of God. We're to um, respect all people, yes, but we're to love the brothers and sisters specially. And so, yes, we're to honor all people, we're to show respect, but there should be a special relationship among believers. We're to show love for one another, which is what we talked about last week. We're to love each other, and that really comes from God, and it flows out from God, and it really demonstrates that we're Christians. We're to fear God. To fear God means to reverence God. It's a proper response to who God is. And as we reverence God, we'll have a hatred for sin and a hunger for righteousness. Finally, we're to honor the king. The king is referring to the earthly ruler of our nation, or the nation that they were involved in. Now, we might not agree with his political views or his lifestyle, but yet we're to honor his position. What does this mean? That means we must not speak evil of our leaders, but the Bible commands us to pray for them. It's a hard truth, but the Bible tells us to do it. As we do this, we're going to live a different life than everybody else around us, especially with our, <laughs> I was going, you know, we're going to live a different life. We're going to be different. 
right? We're going to stand out like a sore thumb. Where are you from? I'm from America, man. You know, kind of thing. You know, so, you know, we're from heaven. You know, we're, we're people who are journeying on to follow the Lord. So in closing, there's a lot of talk about what it is to live a good life today. And Peter tells us exactly what that is as we walk as pilgrims. We learned here that we need to live as surrendered servants of God. And as we do, the response will be holy living and submission to the government. Father, thanks for your word. And-